thanks to our sponsor, Geomont. Have you thought about adding contact center capabilities into your existing Microsoft Teams user base? If so, take advantage of our promo to add BuzzEasy Contact Center for Teams from Geomont and get your first month subscription for free. It's a complete omni-channel experience that works seamlessly with Teams Voice. BuzzEasy was developed with best practices in Azure and offers a rich, easy-to-use experience. Geomont is a Microsoft Gold partner and part of the technology adoption program, and their BuzzEasy chatbot solution for Microsoft Teams has been chosen as a preferred solution on the Microsoft App Store. See the show notes for details around our special offer. This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 436, where today we're going to talk about Azure Functions, CI, and CD, recorded live November the 19th, 2021. This episode is brought to you by Orchestry. Don't be fooled. Microsoft Teams and SharePoint are difficult. Microsoft Teams, when simply turned on, can be unruly and yield endless sprawl. SharePoint causes constant frustration with user interface and permissioning challenges. End the chaos and harness the full power of Microsoft Teams, SharePoint Online, and Microsoft 365 with Orchestry. Orchestry is the work-made-simple platform that empowers end users through controlled self-service provisioning while delivering the actionable insights and lifecycle management your IT administrators need to enable remote and hybrid work productivity without locking down the powerful capabilities of Microsoft Teams and SharePoint Online. See why so many are claiming Orchestry to be the must-have Microsoft Teams management tool of 2021. Get your free access to Orchestry with full featured trial at orchestry.com and tell them the Microsoft Cloud Show sent you to get the all the friends of the show perks. Back to the show. Yo, yo, yo. What's up, CJ? Yo, yo, yo. How you doing? Doing good, man. What you been up to? You've been traveling, yay? I traveled for work. It was very novel. (laughs) (laughs) Not like a virus novel, right? God, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out in 14 days. Yeah, there you go. If I'm, I'm, you know, I have been able to taste food. So, you know, I'm just looking for little signs like, you know, see what's going on. But no, so far, so good. It was good. It was good. It was a work trip to the state of Ohio near Toledo and Holy Toledo. Yep. Where we have our factory for about golf where I work now and a whole bunch of functions are based out of there. So um, yeah, went there for a few days, flew in there on Monday, flew home last night, which is now Thursday. We're now Friday. So it was Thursday when I flew home. Got it. But I tell you what, man, my travel muscles are all out of shape. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard it like that. That's a good way to say it. Oh man, it is. Yeah, definitely all sort of wonky. Mm. Like just not used to travel, not used to being on a plane, not used to sleeping in a different bed in a different hotel, not used to air conditioning in a different place. I mean, admittedly, all that stuff irritated me previously as well. But man, I got home last night and I was just wrecked Mm. (laughs) and slept like a a log. So glad to be home, but it it was a really good trip. Cool. Very cool. Can't say I enjoy travel though. Like, no. you know, and it's going to be inevitable a little bit of it, but man, I really don't miss flying at yeah. all. I've still yet to go on a flight since the whole, that whole thing's the whole pandemic started. And so I'm curious to see what my, how I feel about it. I know that I don't, I don't miss it. That's one thing I, I know I don't miss it, but like, is it going to be, you know, when you do it, do you find that I'm just like extra annoyed by it or I didn't love it before I kind of accepted it, the parts that were just required. Yeah. But it wasn't like 
I didn't avoid it in the past. And I'm just wondering that now after realizing, oh man, I don't do that anymore. I'm really glad I don't do that anymore. And then, you know, when I go back to, when I go back to doing it, I'm going to be like, you know, is it going to be, am I going to be frustrated with it? So I'm really curious, but don't don't uh, worry. Nothing has changed. (laughs) (laughs) I just have to mask up. It's all just as painful as it was. Yeah. So speaking of that, we were joking about the the virus stuff. Get this. So like I went and I had to go. So I have genetically high cholesterol. So to get my medicine refilled every couple months or so, I had to go have blood work taken. Had blood work taken last week, I think it was. And as part of it, I asked my doctor, I was like, hey, can you put it as part of the order to get like an antibody test? Because I've talked to a couple friends that... You know, they said that they've had to get their their antibody levels were low after getting the vaccine initially, and they've gone to get a booster. And I'm like, I'm going to give blood. So is there any, can you just get it added? And he's like, yeah, sure. We'll go ahead and get it added. So I don't know if, if like what I got, if my, I don't know if the, if the lab that was actually taken was a positive negative test. It's a little unclear trying to read it. If it was like, you know, no, you don't, are you, do you have COVID or not? Or do you not have COVID? But it came back and it told, it said, no antibodies detected. I was like, okay, is this like a binary? Like I'm not positive or I'm and I'm negative for COVID or is it truly, was this an antibody test? Right. And so a friend of mine had one of those recently as well. And he sent me a copy of his test. And so I'm looking at his and I'm looking at the numbers that were reported back and I'm looking at mine and it's like, I can't really tell what it was. I'm all curious now. Like, so is it, you know, because I've talked to a few people who were their numbers, they said their numbers are just like, they're nothing and they had to go get a booster. All right. And no, I'm not concerned about it. I mean, fine, I'll go get a booster. I don't really care. But I just, I'm curious because I don't know, I, I just found it really curious. So I, I yeah. don't know what the, I don't know what it means, but. I had a booster shot before a couple, a few weeks ago. Be interested to see, see the numbers. Yeah. I'm, I have to go sit down, sit down with my doctor, I think in another, uh, got like two weeks to go over like the lab results and stuff. And so I'm, I'm curious to ask him like going, did you kind of code this the wrong way? And what I does didn't this mean, get, yeah. I, mean, I, I know I don't feel, I don't think I've been exposed, but like, you know, we're, things are really good where we are. And so we're not like heavily yeah. masked up around here. I mean, You've had the you should have uh, a level of probably a level of antibodies above everybody else you would have thought. Well, and that's the thing, like, you know, because it's only been, it's only been for, you know, a certain amount of time. Everybody's kind of in the same boat where people have had it for about the same amount of time. So nobody really knows, you know, between natural antibodies and vaccine, you don't know how long this stuff lasts. Right. There's no like, well, there's no way to really know, right? Until no magical like, formula. Yeah. yeah. So at any rate, but enough of that jazz. I thought that today after... We finally have talked about it, you know, we, we talked about it a month ago and said, hey, we got a great show idea. And we yes. teased it up and then we realized, oh, shoot, guess what? There's a conference that we totally didn't pay attention to. Or sorry, they, they <laughs> snuck up on us. But That's right. These, these conferences surprise, they, they kind of sneak up on me because I'm usually going to them. And so I've there kind of more of a, a, you know, a milestone in my head. When it's virtual, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll just tune into it on lunch today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you don't. And then I don't, yeah. Yeah. Then something but, else gets in the way, like a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm right there with you, man. Oh, it so, sounds like we suffer from the same problems. So today what we're going to do is we have a, a little bit of rapid fire news. There's nothing really new in Microsoft 365 going on. There was one, there was some Yammer thing, but it wasn't like, it was I very teams. I got one Teams thing to talk about, but that's oh, it. Oh, okay. This episode is sponsored by ShareGate. 
Microsoft Teams can be a great tool for your organization. That is, before your users make your environment messier than eating a hard shell taco. And that's where ShareCake comes in. Their user-friendly tools automate the tedious daily tasks involved in migrating, managing, and securing Microsoft Teams so that you can maintain a safe and productive environment without locking it down. Head over to ShareGate.com for your free 30-day trial and transform the way that you manage your Microsoft Teams. And we're back. So we have a little bit of news we're going to do. We're not going to do one of our what's new in Microsoft 365 from the message center stuff. But I have two quick ones that I can throw out there. And then the first one is that Azure Functions, as an announcement from Ignite, Azure Functions 4.0 has shipped with .NET 6 support. It's now generally available. And the other big one was that the Microsoft Graph guys, they've released a new SDK as a beta. This SDK is written in Go. So this is for all of you gophers that are developers out there <laughs> that are writing in Go. I've played with it a little bit. So that's yeah, I, I was kind of surprised they did that, but it's cool. Yeah. I like to see it. I've been a bit fascinated with Go, actually. It's been something I've been meaning to try and find some time to go and learn a bit more about and, and try some stuff out with. Because it's more like, I guess it's it's sort of, it's a compiled language, right? It goes down to bits and bytes, mm-hmm. all right? It's not interpreted. My understanding is it's not interpreted That's like correct. C Sharp is or, or .NET. And so it's very performant. You can get quite, you can write quite high performing code with Go because of it. But anyway, yeah. And it, it's obviously it's being used a lot. So uh, it seems like something I should learn, but I haven't had a good good reason to do it yet. Yeah, it's. I mean, for those who don't who aren't familiar with it, it's think Go is like C You don't need something to run an app that's written in Go. You don't need like a managed framework like .NET or the J2EE or something like that. It's came out of uh, Google, and one of the things to me that's appealing about it is that it's it's a modern language that's written for like that takes into account like networking and all that other kind of stuff, right? So in the past, you know, that wasn't. A prevalent networking and async and all that stuff wasn't exactly a, a, a common thing when C was first coming about. It was all added to C. So this is like from the get-go, it's part of Go. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So those are my two of my big news. I got a couple other ones, but you say you've got one here about Microsoft it's, about Microsoft Teams. You say it's in Go from the get-go. It's in Go from the get-go. Yeah. All right. Yes, I do have something about Teams. Meta aka Facebook, and Microsoft have announced a partnership to integrate Workplace and Teams. So what this means, I think, is they've gone and done a partnership deal where Microsoft will do some engineering work, Meta will do some engineering work, and they're going to bring some workplace connectivity stuff into Teams through the normal, I would guess, through the same set of normal extension points that everybody else has access to. Hmm. Kind of like, so when I was at Microsoft, we did a deal with Dropbox that was the same sort of deal, right? Hmm. That's how we got, you know, Dropbox connectivity into Word, et cetera. And also how Dropbox started using the Word and Excel web applications to edit those kinds of documents when you're in Dropbox. Hmm. That was the result of that partnership. Those were some of the kinds of things that came out of it. So Microsoft goes and does these partnership, these deals with various companies to try and sort of build various integrations between different major players like that. And so I think this is just another one of those. Hmm. But essentially, it'll result in Facebook building some apps for Teams. Oh, that's the, that's interesting. But Microsoft might go do some engineering to add some APIs and add some bits and pieces that they need to add for Facebook to fulfill the scenarios that they want to do in Teams, perhaps some mutually agreed 
kind of integrations. Cool. I don't know why. I'm interested on why this was done on from the Microsoft side. Yeah, I don't have any insight into that. But I'm guessing they want a bunch more customers using Teams that use Workplace right now. I can't imagine it's a huge number. Remember the last numbers we saw were something like only like 2 million or a million. It was less than 5 million people were on Workplace, which is like Facebook's business solution. Yeah. So Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, uh, some sort of... Oh, here we go. It hit 7 million paid subscribers. There you go. So it's not... That was in May. So it's not gigantic. Not for Facebook scale. So no. yeah, that's... And not next to Teams, which has 250 million monthly actives. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So some nice uh, integrations if you're a workplace customer, probably coming in the next, I don't know, year, maybe? Something like that. I have an interesting bit of news here that somebody from a blast from the past. Remember Sega? Yeah. I thought you. I might get a Sega out of you. <laughs> no. <laughs> but Sega and Xbox, Microsoft have partnered, have announced a strategic partnership that's going to enable the Japanese company to develop next-gen video games at big scale using Azure Microsoft's cloud platform. So that's the title of the, or that's the, the big byline to it. But it really looks like this announcement is really more of a handshake going, we should do some stuff together. Yeah, There's not yeah. like anything substantial because it's kind of like, they want, because the, the rest of the article about this, it's on the daily stock market news. That's all about, you know, we're planning ahead. We want to look at, you know, broad development and leveraging 5G and cloud services. And is there, you know, people want entertainment all the time. We want to investigate to see what options are there to be able to build video games in the cloud. And so it's like, okay, so you guys are kind of like doing a professional press release hackathon. Yo, dog, okay. I'm going to put an announcement out about an announcement. Yeah, about a potential future announcement. All right. So I'm interesting though, this is you know a shot across the bow of PlayStation, right? Because both being Japanese companies, headquartered mm-hmm. companies, I should say, that'll be quite interesting. Sega's got some video game clout, and mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what they ultimately end up announcing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The the other thing that I was gonna that I wanted to mention too, um, just real briefly, is that uh, there was a epic outage earlier this week. It was not Amazon. It was not Azure. It was the Google Cloud platform. And wow. This one was quite a big kick to the midsection for a lot of people because it knocked out Etsy. And everybody's like, well, yeah, was it that big of a deal? Yes, Etsy's a big deal, especially coming into the holiday shopping season. Snapchat, so all the kids were furious. Ooh. Discord, which pissed off a lot of people. That would really piss off a lot of people. And Spotify. Ouch. Yeah. And it was a network issue. It was pretty bad because it wasn't so much like the service wasn't available. It was kind of looked like the service was deleted because when you went to the site, any of those sites, they all just kind of gave you 404s. I'm like, I'm um, pretty sure I got this domain right. <laughs> so yeah, it was um, pretty bad. Well, this, nobody's immune, it seems. No, this happened on November the 16th. It ended up being a network issue. It was a configuration issue. Knocked out a bunch of people. It also, I mean, when you look at the down detector... It knocked out Nest. That makes sense because it's Google. It knocked out Target, Lowe's, Home Depot, Pokemon, Snapchat, Discord, Spotify, Etsy, Paramount Plus. So big, big shot. Credit Karma. Wow. Big outage. Target. Target. That's brutal. Mm -hmm. Home Depot. Ouchies. So Right. That sucks. Anyway, that's it.
Nice. So now we covered a little bit of let's get on to a segment that people have. I know we've mentioned, I mentioned we were going to do this a couple of weeks ago. We agreed that it was a good idea. We did it on the show. It was one of those things we probably should have discussed before we went live talking about it on the show and recorded it and pushed it out. We should have thought through, like, let's plan this out. <laughs> and now we, we get didn't to think actually... too far ahead, did we? No, no, no. Now we get to actually do it. So let's jump into a discussion here about using Azure Functions with uh, CI and CD. This podcast is brought to you by Raygun. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that not only it tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences to your users. That's raygun.com to get started on your 14-day free trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. Back to the show. All right. I'm going to take over. It's no longer your show, AC. It's not much. I'm going to ask you questions about Azure Functions. How about that? That works for me. So I've done a bit with Azure Functions and stuff, but you built a whole bunch of your business based on it, right? So I think this is great to share what you've learned on your journey and what might help others in their journey. So I guess, why don't we start by sort of setting the scene for how all this came to be and then go from there. So sort of what prompted you into going and figuring some of this stuff out? Like where were you previously Mm -hmm. in terms of how you were running the business and then what made you look at Azure Functions to start picking things off the list? Okay. So I'll do this, the history side pretty quick on this. So like, I guess my business is all set up as pretty much being implemented with five different SaaS providers. They don't natively, most of them don't natively talk to each other between video delivery of my courses, email, and then payment processing. And the way that we kind of glue them together for the most part is with uh, Zapier, which for those who know Zapier, it's kind of like, think like an easier to use version of like Power Power Automator Flow. Or a more businessy version of Ift. Yeah. Yeah. Or a more businessy version of Ift. Yeah. It kind of sits between Ift and, and Power Automate. I use that for instead of Power Automate because there were, frankly, there was a lot of things I couldn't do in Power Automate that I could do in, in, in Zapier. So yeah. when the business started, like to be able to integrate things together, one of the things I had to do is I had to collect a bunch of data from these different providers using webhooks. But then I had other little like utility tasks that kind of came up that I needed to do to instrument and kind of automate some stuff. And classic, hey, the business, we're staying the business up. So it's just, let's get this stuff done. Let's just make it work. And so I just, yeah. And so I went in and I created like an Azure Functions app. I did it as a JavaScript or the platform on Node with a Windows based host. And I wrote all of my functions with a bunch of console.log statements right in the browser editor. And everything worked. That was back in 2017. And over the years, I've been terrified to touch any of them. Because right. some of them, if I mess with it, they could easily just kind of bring down a lot yeah, of the integrations critical. with the business. Yeah. yeah. So think like when someone signs up for a course, they need to get a bunch of onboarding emails. That's about you know 
creating their account, their credit cards getting charged, and then how do they get access to the content and then instructions on how to like leverage the course and everything. Right. And all of that's kind of, you know, instrumented between the different the, between the different platforms, part with Azure Functions and part with Zapier. But I, I, I came, I have more and more needs to be able to create more Azure Functions. And I never was confident in going and, edit and updating any of the functions that we had. And mm. also was a little concerned about creating new functions that would potentially mess up the app service that I was on. I didn't have a really good story for like deployment of new things. It was all just kind of like, there's no developer environment. It was just all go work in production and just kind of make stuff yeah. work and hope you don't break anything. It pretty much, yeah. And so, you know, as a developer, that always drove me crazy. And it's been on my list now for really the last two years to say, let's recreate these things. Let's rewrite them as TypeScript. Let's wrap them up in some good automated testing. And let's have a much better deployment story, like pushing these things through, like having them in, in real source control uh, repositories instead of just having everything living as a in the browser yeah. editor. That's kind of where I was. I finally just decided a couple... I decided this actually earlier this year when I had a little bit of free time. I rewrote the two or three major ones that I I could not that I had to migrate over. I rewrote them as TypeScript. I re, I did them all with automated testing using Jest. Set up a whole like deployment story and stuff that I'll go through today. But I never rolled it out because I wanted to do it on a Linux host, and we actually found I actually found a bug on the Linux host for Azure Functions that was my process was using that it, we I could replicate that it worked on Windows, but it didn't work on Linux. They they recognized it was a bug and it took them two months to get the the thing fixed and rolled out to the Linux host. So I decided to yeah. hold off on rolling this out until I guess like a month or two ago. One thing I've noticed with Azure Functions over its since it sort of launched is at least from the lay person's perspective, they make it very easy to create functions just through the Azure portal. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, create a function. Here's a sort of an in-browser code editor. Start adding your code, hit test, et cetera. And then hit, you know, here's your hooks and whatnot and go live. But any developer worth their weight <laughs> will be like, yeah, it's cool for playing with stuff, but you want to do things the same way you would with rolling out a website or yep. a microservice or some other piece of code, right? You want to have them, you want to have that code in source control and have it unit tested or whatnot and have a development environment and have a production environment. So I'm guessing you got to the point where you're like, yeah, it served its purpose, but it's on shaky territory and I want to get it into a bit more of a robust software development life cycle, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything worked, but, and I didn't have any reason for, to believe why it would not work, but I was just scared that if, if there was ever a point when Azure Functions had like this epic outage and they're like, well, just go back to your backups. I'd be like, holy crap. So let me let me explain what I've done and what I've actually rolled out here. And I, I love this process. I probably will write it up as like a blog post at one point. I have one image I'm going to share with you in just a minute that I know our listeners won't be able to see it, but I'll make that as part of the blog post as well. It's a UML sequence diagram that kind of explains how everything works. And it's it's a little complicated, but when you look at it piece by piece, it actually makes a lot more sense. So what I now have is I now have an app or a GitHub repo where my Azure Function app is resides. I can do my normal development with it. So hold on, one automated sec. One sec. So yeah. when you... So how did you create that? Okay. So I started... I used the fun, Azure Function tools. So there's a there's a set that you can install on For your VS machine. Code? You can install them via VS Code. It's a command line. 
Got so it. it's, it's a command line thing that you can install, but there's also a VS Code extension that makes it a little bit easier to kind of view stuff. So what I did is I installed that. And so now I have through the Azure, through the Azure CL, I created a brand new Azure function app, just did the standard prototype with it, modified a little bit of the stuff that was set up, but then went in and started adding in my functions. And that's as simple as like in VS Code, you can just say, add a new function. It asks you, what do you want to name it? What do you want the trigger to be? And then you hit enter and it generates the, the index.json or sorry, the index.ts file, the function.json file that describes your Azure function. So like inputs, outputs, right, right. name, all so that stuff. So it scaffolds for, it all out for you. Yeah. And it really just generates those three files. There's a, there's another like data file that it creates that you, you can delete. But so what I wanted to do is I wanted to have full visibility on my, on my functions, like full instrumentation. I wanted to not only have inst- instrumentation and telemetry on the functions that were running, but I also wanted to be able to use the same app insights for my own tracing and my own logging, tracking metrics and stuff, not just metrics with the, the technical metrics of the hosting environment, but metrics for like what my function does. So like yeah. how many how many things are in the queue? How many things are is it processing in the queue? Stuff like that. So once I created this, I also then went in, I have a bunch of different, a handful maybe, what is it? Like one, two, three, four, I have five, I have four, technically I have five, but I really only use four GitHub actions or GitHub workflows yep. that control the entire deployment. And so the, the way that this is all set up is that I do my development locally on my machine. I can run the Azure functions through the function runtime locally on my machine, testing them out, make sure everything works. That was going to be my question about local dev and Mm -hmm. and making sure that you can, you know, in your dev cycle, that you can iterate locally and debug without having to deploy to a dev environment in Azure. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to share with you so you can kind of see, you can get some context in this. And I know that our listeners can't see this, but we'll do our best to to explain what's going on. Yeah, I'm like a radio host watching there you a, go. watching a football game and try to commentate. There you go. <laughs> so what this does then is when I want to go through and I want to spin this up and I want to start running my Azure Functions, I have a little script that I run, just npm start. And what that does is that fires off two commands. So it fires off a command that's going to compile my TypeScript to JavaScript and put the TypeScript compiler in watch mode. So if I make any changes, it automatically rebuilds it. Yep. And then I also start the Azure function runtime. And what the Azure function runtime is doing is it's watching the source files, the JavaScript files that are running. And so if there's ever a change, it'll restart and pick up all those changes. Nice. So what that does is that allows me to run my functions locally and make sure that everything is working the way, the way that I want them to work. But then where it gets cool, and I'm going to show this to you here, this is the actual flow and deployment looks like. Gotcha. So what my de- the way that my deployment works is that when I do my dev, I want to have it to where my entire deployment story is all managed through GitHub Actions. I don't want to have to go to the Azure the Azure portal to manage anything or control anything. I want yep, everything gotcha. to be automated. So it's all triggers based on certain things happening in GitHub. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So what I have is I have two slots set up for my functions. So this can be done in, in a Windows host or it can be done on a Linux host. I use a Linux host because I find it to be a lot faster. So what I do is I do all my local dev, push up to a GitHub repo, and then I want to have a place to kind of look at my Azure functions that are running in like a hosted mode, but I want it to be not public. And then I want the public one that's out there as yeah. well. So I have a production environment and I have a staging, I have a production slot and a staging slot. So the way it works is that whenever I do a push from either my master branch or from my development branch in my repo, that's going to always trigger a workflow to run 
that is in um, GitHub. In GitHub. Yeah. That's going to run all of my tests. And assuming all my tests pass, it is then going to deploy my Azure Function app over to the staging on my Azure Function. Now, now the way that gotcha. it does this is that it does this using an Azure Function. We have this thing called a, a publishing profile. And so what I end up doing is I have to, I log in via the CLI, download the publishing profile for the target slot. And then I use that to go push the deployment oh, yeah. over to the staging slot. So in your, in your GitHub workflow action or whatever it is called, you end up writing some CLI code that goes and automates Azure, like using the Azure CLI to go pull that publishing profile yep. and use that to, to then go and subsequently push or publish the new version of the function. Yes. Yeah. So nice. what I do is I have, an, I have a CLI command that says AZ space function app space deployment space list publishing profiles. And then you pass in parameters like what's your subscription, your resource ID, your name of the function app, and then what slot you're looking for. Right. And what that does is that gives you back some XML. So I take that and then I use the out-of-the-box function app GitHub Action to then publish my Azure function and pass in the publishing profile as... That. That's like your credentials, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. So and so in GitHub, you're, there is already a publishing action for functions. Yes. yes. Gotcha. The only, now, the only downside of this is that you can't... Like the publishing profile, when you pull it down, it's like a clear text thing. So it shows up in my logs and it's got the credentials in there. So technically my credentials are in the GitHub action, the workflow log. Yeah, gotcha. And what I really should do, and I'm not doing it right now, is that you should immediately after using it, you should tell the function app to go reset your publishing profile and that'll, that'll roll your credentials, which mm. after deployment that works, I just haven't done that yet. Gotcha. It's a shame they don't have a... GitHub doesn't have a... The way this would work in DevOps, right? Where you can create a connection to, to Azure and DevOps. And then yep. it's sort of, that's the way it authenticates. And then you can yep. do different, different actions using that. I'm guessing you're working around that by pulling this publishing profile. That's correct. I am going to modify this. There is something that was, at, that was announced at um, Ignite just recently where we can have like a managed a service identity and we can treat GitHub and GitHub repos as a managed identity. So I can just give that repo permissions to deploy to right. that particular slot. That's brilliant. That's kind of the way the connection thing works with DevOps too, right? Is yep. you can go create a, a like a service account essentially. That's correct. Yeah. That, and that's exactly what I'm going to end up doing. I just haven't, well, frankly, Black Friday has got my attention right now. So I Fair haven't enough. done that yet. Fair enough. The other thing that I end up doing too, which is nice, is that I set two environment variables on the Azure, on the staging function to set the app version. I should never have to change this because this is pinned to the slot, but I set the app version equal to staging and I set the commit hash of oh, yeah. the, nice. the commit that actually was the one that, that triggered it. I so set that like as a your, property as well. It's like your app version, but you're using, yes. the, you're using the commit hash, the SHA, to, to say this is my version that's currently deployed to staging. That's correct. Yeah, yep. that's correct. Now, what's cool about it, and this will come into play in just a minute, is I'll talk to you about how the, how the telemetry is set up, but the app version, the fact that it's called staging, that's going to make a difference in a minute. But... And just for now, what that's done now is now when I, when I push up a change, it now goes out and rolls out my Azure function into my staging slot where I can play with stuff. Now, the only like fallacy with this or the only problem with this is that when the staging slot is running, if you have any functions that are set up on a trigger, they're still going to run when they're in the staging slot. So yep. 
Yeah. What I've done is, is I usually go in and I turn off the staging before oh, I do I a deploy. After I do a deployment, I've tested things and then I turn it back on because the, the deployment will fail if the staging slot is not turned on. I'm not a big fan of that, how that's set up right now. Mm. I mean, but I, that's something I can mm. optimize a bit, but I have one function that runs every five minutes to check a log to go process stuff on a queue. And it's when it's running in production and in development, and they're both targeting the same source because they don't make right. changes. Right. So, anyway. Yeah. You don't want to do double work kind of thing. Right. So now the next thing that I ended up doing with this, and so that that kind of sucks because now like in, in that one timer function or, t- or function that's triggered by a timer, the one thing that sucks is that there is code in there that checks to see, are we in staging or are we not in staging? Right. Because if we're right. in staging, a little branch of logic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't like doing that. I wish that I didn't have to do that, but whatever. Right. Right. Now, the next thing is, how do I get this stuff to production? So the way we get this in production is that the only way that I ever want a production, a role to happen for swapping the production, the staging slot is whenever I do a, whenever I publish a new version or a new release in my GitHub repo. And so what I do is when I'm ready, I, when I'm ready to go roll it out, I go update in my package.json, I go update the version number of the solution to you know, I do, I use major.minor.patch. So I update the version number, save my changes, make a commit, push it. And I have in my, I have a, a little, some logic in my Azure function, or sorry, in my GitHub action that checks to see, should I skip doing the CI and CD when the, in this commit? And I do it I by checking here. I'll show you what this looks like there. It only does, it only goes through and does my deployment if it does not see a string that says skips dash CD in yep. square brackets in my yeah. commit message. Got it. Now, here's where it gets fun. So what I do is when I'm ready to go through and to start to create a release and roll things from staging to production, I tag that in Git. So I give it a new tag. That, that tag name is the same name as the version number. Right. And I push that tag up to the GitHub repo. Mm-hmm. What that does is that triggers another GitHub workflow to run. And all it does is it creates a brand new release in GitHub but it leaves it in draft mode. I see. And what that, that lets me do is then it's I have something that's ready to go live, but it always allows me to have eyes on and human interaction. And you before. can time it to when you want to do it. Exactly. Yeah. I can time it and I can even go through and modify like the description and all that other stuff in that release. Yep. So when I then go in and I publish the release in GitHub, that's what triggers another GitHub action that kicks in and does the process of swapping the production and the staging slots. Gotcha. But one of the things that it does when it, when it makes that change is that, or actually two of the things it does when it makes that change is that it sets the value of the app version and the commit hash environment variables on the production slot right. equal to the real version number and the hash that's going to go and that was part of the commit. So what I now have, what's cool about that is that now when I get into my telemetry, I'll show you, is that every single bit of telemetry that I log, not just the stuff that I log, but the stuff that is automatically captured by App Insights, it always has the version number of the app as part of the telemetry. So if there's something going on, I can always say, only show me stuff for this version so I can see if an error has disappeared um, that was there. Yeah, nice, nice. So That's super important, right? Logs are great, but not great. Potentially not great if you don't know what version of the software logged the log. You know what I mean? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally correct. So this is cool because what I now have is I have this entire process that is now set up to do all the deployment, soup to nuts, CI and CD. 
the last question. I, yeah. Was there any reason or what was your reasoning behind using tags to decide whether to push to prod versus branches? So like, like historically I've used similar flow, but not for functions, but for other code, but you'd push to, you know, the development branch and it would go do your CI CD pipe and, and, you know, push to staging or push to integration or whatever environment. And then when I wanted to do a release, I've used a release branch that I've pushed to, and that has triggered, you know, a release to production, for example. Mm-hmm. I guess it's similar, right? You're just using tags tags to trigger things instead of instead of a branch. The reason I've done branches in the past is to sort of keep keep the code separate of what's in prod versus what's in development and be able to make hot fixes to production without having to mess up other people committing code to dev because you still kept things separate. So say for example if you if you pushed version 1.0 to production Mm-hmm. And then you noticed a little bug and you needed to hotfix prod mm-hmm. super fast. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, somebody had gone and added code to your development branch. You couldn't release off that branch again. Right. right? You'd need to create a separate, you know, hotfix branch to do that. And so by branching off into a release branch, you've kind of got that as your working, your, your temporary working place for any hotfixes that need to come in for production, if that makes right. sense. So yeah, it's a great question. And it, for me, the reason I chose to do this, it was part of a kind of like the way that Azure Functions is set up. I don't like, like I don't have a way to fully replicate the entire functions environment outside of Azure. And so while I could have had it set up to have like a separate functions app that does that I can deploy my development stuff to and I can see everything running true in production, that's kind of what slots are giving me. Yeah. So what you don't see here is you don't see like my development process where I actually have my development branch will trigger a similar process, but it only pushes to the development slot. I see. The staging slot is what I use just for master. And so staging is what will be in production. And I do have that ability. So like master is with one exception, master is always a reflection of what's in production. The one exception is except in that in that short time window mm. of when I'm making sure that what's running in staging is what I want to be in production, right. which is usually just a couple minutes for that to go. Plus the whole thing with like how Azure maintains like swapping of slots and it makes sure that it holds on to traffic and then sends that while it's doing a, a right. swap slot. So right. that makes a lot that, more sense. Yeah. It's just simply because of the nature of how like Azure functions works. But I do the same thing like on our production site. Or like on our blog, or sorry, on our pod, I do the same. Whenever it's a push to master, master always goes straight to production. Yeah, I see. Cool. Now, the only other thing I do with this, though, I just say it's kind of interesting with this, is that so I have everything, all the telemetry is all managed with App Insights. And I figured out this cool little way of doing this. So usually when you create a new function, and I'll show you what it looks like. I have this one function here called a heartbeat. And if I look at index.ts, this is generally what you're normally going to get. So this function just makes sure that when one of my other functions or none of them are working, I want to be able to make sure that something is working. Yeah. So I have a function called heartbeat that yeah. just adds two numbers together. Sure, sure. Sorry. That, that seems very familiar. It's kind of like just, I, I call it my echo endpoint. Yes. Like whatever I send it, it just echoes it back to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. pretty much what this is. I mean, it, it'll do that. But if I pass in two operands to it, it'll add them together. Gotcha. So this is how a traditional function normally looks. What I've done is in my functions, it's a little bit different. Instead, the index for my Azure function here is really a wrapper to the Azure function 
that's stuffed inside of App Insights. So what I do is I do some initial configuration with App Insights when the function is actually called, do some initial configuration. That initial configuration includes doing things like setting the name, or sorry, mm-hmm. setting the name of the app. So app.name, that's the function yep. name. That's going to be a custom property on all telemetry that comes in. And then I also set the version number. Oops. Mm. I then set the version number as another property. And that's what allows me to filter all of the telemetry that I get, either stuff that's caught by yeah. the function's runtime or that I catch at the same time. By version. Yeah, by version number. Yeah, nice. But that's then cool. what that and what that does then is it also allows me by when I set this stuff up, it then allows me to the function that I'm returning back is essentially a wrapper that starts a app insights operation, which is basically wrapping it inside of one big context. So the request that comes in, I can see the entire trace that it goes through, what other dependencies it calls and all that stuff. All and it wraps it all together. into one thing. Yeah, all yeah. correlated together. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. So that just pulls in the function and calls the function just passing in on the request that came in. And you can see like, I can see things like the, the actual request as the request came in, it's just a normal Azure function then that's getting run. Wow, that's clean. It's clean and it's what it makes it, it's so, gives me so much more confidence in making changes. I've made yeah. so many little tweaks to the functions. I was doing it just five minutes before we jumped on the call here for a, a new one that I was adding for like dynamically generating open graph images. And yeah, yeah, well, it's, really, other, it's really cool. The other thing I love about having all the stuff in place is that you can then leave it for a year. Yep. And come back to it and not have to scratch your head about how stuff works to get the change deployed. Yep. Right. I mean, this goes for any any well set up automation and CI CD pipe. Is you don't have to sort of relearn how to deploy something if yep. you have a big gap and, and you can't remember. So that's that, clean. That's the big reason why I do it. I mean, because I the big thing about the whole like the, the especially the CD process, the CD process is how does this whole thing run? I can go back and look at it and my my CD, my entire continuous deployment story, which is all done in GitHub workflows, the workflow itself is the documentation. It tells yes, me yeah. exactly the way it's supposed to work. And what's also docs. cool, yeah, and what's also cool about this, and what I'm not going to get into today because it's just too much detail, but I've even gone through and I've used ARM templates to define the function, the app service, right. and the storage account that are all used to implement the Azure function. I'm not using ARM templates. I'm actually using Bicep, which is a thing that was like a cleaner way to write ARM templates. Mm -hmm. But what's cool about that is that now, whenever I want to make a change to my Azure function app, I can make a change in code. And part of my deployment story will go apply that Bicep file to my Azure function app. And it does it in incremental mode. So it says, if there's any change, if something is different, then we'll change it to be the value that we have in code. So that now... I'm doing CI and CD and also doing deployment as infrastructure, but infrastructure as code. Yeah. Yep. Nice. So if any, if the proverbial hits the fan and you need to move your functions to some other region or something like that, yep. or have some set up in another region or whatnot, you can just go redeploy them really easily because you've got infrastructure as code there. Yeah. I've done it. I've tried it a couple of times. And I mean, I've got like, I'll go create a resource group and like, let me just deploy it over here and see what this does. And sure enough, like everything's up and running and my Azure functions are running Perfect. the exact same way that they were. Perfect. Uh, it's awesome. Wow, what a nice upgrade. It's been nice. It's been, it gives you a lot more confidence to, you know, start a deployment yeah. and everything looks good and walk away from your desk and not just hope and have to go through all these different tests and make sure stuff is still working. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> cool. 
Yeah. Thanks for walking through with it. Walking through yeah. it, I should say. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I may write this up. I mean, I don't know if, if this was interesting for people, but yeah, it's a, it took a lot of work to put it together and to get the Azure functions together, or sorry, to get the back actions and workflows together, but came out good. Yeah, nice. Okay. So that's Azure functions. That's the news. That leaves one more thing that we have to do today. Let's get into the picks. ACs Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. Back to the show. All right, CJ, what do you have for us today? I have a video entitled, Driving My Tesla Model S Plaid Underwater. Oh my God, I've seen this. Have you seen this? Yeah, this is crazy. Does it float, sink, or drive seven feet under? (laughs) So there's this guy who, I guess we could call it sacrificed his Tesla Model S Plaid, which is the fancy one, the super fancy one, right? The new one, With the fancy looking Knight Rider steering wheel and all that, and decides to weight it down with 13,000 pounds of weights, like, you know, weightlifting weights. Yeah. And tapes up all the cracks and then drives it through this massive ditch filled with water and sees if he can see sees if he can make it all the way out the other side and it's pretty comical let's just say he's not successful the first time and the the car floats and uh, he has to make some mods but needless to say you know i don't want to spoil everything but the car has some issues he needs a new car (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it is impressive how far he makes it Impressively insane. I can't believe that. That's like a hundred and some odd thousand dollar car that he did that to. Yeah. But the funny part, okay, I'll give this part away. He calls Tesla customer support or Mm -hmm. service. Yeah. And he's like, "Um, I've got pretty much every light showing. (laughs) What can I do? And and they're like, have you turned it off and then on again? Like, oh, I've heard this before. Yeah. Turns out, yeah, he's got more problems than uh, this poor woman that took his service call could handle. And uh, yeah, he pretty much bricked his car at the end. But it, it made it a long way. It's incredible. Farther than you would have expected. Oh, yeah. For an electric car, I was expecting some sort of lithium explosion. You know? <laughs> um, how about um, you? What have you got for us this week? I have a fun thing here. And these days, we see this happen all the time. So every week, you should go create your own major breach and outage bingo card. This is all for how you want, if you want to see how you're doing across the rest of the, the rest of the world and the rest of the other developers and techies out there. You create your card, has a list of a whole bunch of different services that are out there. For November, 2021, the one that I send you is all tracking. And what you can do is as your card gets created, as different things happen, it gets filled in and you can call bingo if everything works. So right now, <laughs> let's see here. I've got for my November 2021 call, let's see, I've got the free space in the middle. I have a major ISP or telecom company has had an outage or a breach. Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram has had one. Google Cloud Platform, we just went through that. Oh yeah, And those are all filled out. I'm just now waiting on a major VPN service to be either have a, a breach or an outage and I get to call bingo. Classic. Yeah. I don't see Azure AD called out separately here. I don't either. That's the one thing that's missing with this. I do see Azure, but I don't see Azure. I do see AD. Azure, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got things like major, major code hosting service, <laughs> Apple, Twitch, Google's main servers, Azure, Microsoft's main servers. An entire that, top level domain. Yeah. Dyn, Slack, Tesla. 
other Reddit. major D- CDNs, Reddit, uh, this a is government funny. entity. <laughs> yeah, this is like uh, meeting. Oh yeah, conference call buzzword bingo. bingo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Buzzword bingo. Yeah, yeah. But for uh, but for breaches and cloud out- and outages, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's I mean, good. It's amazing how many of these happen per month. It really is. It's kind of scary. What is it? A five but, by five grid? Yeah, five by a, five grid. Yeah, five by five. We got a major major VPN service goes down or Tesla goes down, and that will that'll totally that'll fill it up. That'll derail it. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's calling bingo if that happens. Oh yeah, there's a yeah, true. Well, your car's had an outage. Bingo. Well, Mike, oh, wait, hold on. That's Mike. <laughs> I think it, I'm still waiting to find out of that one. Yeah. <laughs> Battery seems to be on it, but I still haven't. I'm watching it. Gotcha. Awesome. awesome. That's a great one. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Cool. Well, CJ, fun catching up again. Indeed. And, uh, Back in the saddle. Next week. Well, next week is Thanksgiving, so we're going to have to record at a special time or we may be taking a week off. Yes, we have to discuss that. We're not going to commit to that right now on the call. We've done that a couple of times now. We're going to have a, we'll have an yeah. offline call and you'll find out very quickly if uh, CJ and I have decided to take a week off. I will be in Canada, eh? Oh, I will have family in town. So let me shake the magic eight ball. Yeah, let's see. All, all signs right. point, all signs point to a skip. Okay, got it. <laughs> all right. Have a good one. Yeah, man, you too. Did you like this episode? Please tweet about it and drop a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find out about our show and grow the audience, and we would really appreciate it. If you got a question for us, go to microsoftcloudshow.com slash questions, where you can submit it as text or record it as a wave or an MP3 and provide a link to it so that we can play your question on the show. You can also subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts, in the Google Play Store, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. And finally, sign up to our mailing list by heading over to our website, microsoftcloudshow.com. You'll get notices of each new episode as well as the show notes sent directly to you each week. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening.